You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Follow along with me. Paul says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Father, I ask that you would come, speak to us through your word, and we trust and believe that your presence is here because your word promises us that where two or more are gathered together asking anything in your name, that you would be there and that you would answer those prayers. So Father, our prayer collectively today is that you would speak to us from your word, that you would come and strengthen our hearts where we are weak. Encourage our hearts where we are discouraged. Um, Give us boldness where we lack courage. Uh, Give us healing where we are walking in woundedness. And Lord, uh, for anyone who walked in here today whose heart is dead, Father, I pray that you would do a miraculous work of bringing that heart, those hearts to life. Pray, Father, that the, that the message of the gospel would be clear to us this morning in this passage. That you would draw us to your presence. That you would draw us to the power of the cross and the empty tomb. Pray, Father, that you would come now and even purify the words of my heart, meditations of my heart things that come out of my mouth. You would use them, bring yourself honor and glory. You would use my words to do good to your people. I would beg you to do that work. Amen. Last week we uh, talked about the storms of life and what it looked like to weather those storms and what it looked like to be anchored in the midst of the storms. You might remember if you've heard that sermon. (laughs) Title of my message for this week is called Good News for Everyone. As I thought about the truth that the gospel is good news for everyone, I was reminded that bad news travels really fast. Bad news travels really fast. It doesn't travel super slow. Um, In this age of the internet, mobile devices, we oftentimes receive bad news within moments of the event, right? 
You know, I spoke last week about this, last Sunday about this week being an anniversary that's tough for me to deal with every year of my mom's death and, and her uh, uh, funeral, which would have been this last Thursday. Uh, actually, Thursday was Valentine's Day, right? So it would have been Friday. It was the day after Valentine's Day. It makes Valentine's Day really weird for me. Um, when you think about receiving bad news um, and how quickly we do, I just remember getting that phone call that morning around 5, 5.30 or so uh, that she w- was within moments of passing away. And we just, just even thinking, like, and if this would have been another day and age, a cell phone call wouldn't have been made. It would have been much different. We live in a day and age where bad news, and all news, travels fast. But for some reason, doesn't it seem like bad news travels faster than good news? Just in the last week alone, I heard of two very disturbing events unfolding in the Christian world. Got something in my throat. Forgive me. I heard uh, two very disturbing events in the Christian world. Uh, One of those events was a report of a well-known preacher shipwrecking his ministry. Shipwrecked his ministry career. Shipwrecked many relationships that he had, if not even possibly shipwrecking his faith, if you examine the evidence in his life. This man had been entrusted with a worldwide ministry that spanned many different uh, continents, uh, publishing companies that wrote his books, uh, church planting ministries, leadership development ministries. I could name him easily, and most of you in this room probably heard him on the radio. <coughs> in, in a moment, years of hard work melted down, down the drain. Years of hard work melted down by systematic, private rejection of what it means to have a clean conscience like we spoke about last week. The other disturbing event that I uh, read about uh, was the report of 700 cases of sexual misconduct, systematic organizational cover-ups that have taken place over the last 20 years within some of the churches in the largest Christian denomination, largest missionary sending agency, Actually, the denomination that we're now part of, the SBC, churches within our denomination, our affiliation, found guilty of 20 years of abusive ministry. Those kinds of things leave people wounded deeply and questioning their faith, wondering how could Christians do this? So bad news travels fast. The reality for us is that every morning we wake up to news alerts on our mobile devices, don't we? Every morning we wake up to bad news in our news feeds. I've actually gotten in the habit of not turning my TV on to Fox News or CNN or any of the others. It's the same alert over and over and over again. Feeds fear and feeds anxiety. 
Another terrorist attacks, another person gets murdered. Another high-profile marriage goes south. Another political firestorm erupts. Another baby dies. Another person crumbles under the weight of a secret addiction. Another once-trusted friend shipwrecks their life. Bad news travels fast. Leaves my heart hungry for good news. And I imagine as we think about the text that this is probably the case in Ephesus too, right? Like the Ephesian church was known to be a major player uh, in, in, in the Christian um, scene of its time. They were a major player of Christian evangelism. They were in a major city, the Ephesian church was. Two well-known leaders, Paul named them Alexander and Hymenaeus. Previously, two well-known leaders had shipwrecked their faith by the sounds of the news broadcasts in Ephesus. There were more people who were following in their footsteps. More leaders were failing to hold fast to the faith. More leaders were refusing to keep a clean conscience. Oftentimes, we want to use victimizing language rather than ownership language when it comes to these. In Ephesus, uh, these people who were following in the same footsteps as previous disqualified shipwrecked leaders, their faith was fading. Remember the statement from last week? And their filthy consciences were becoming fried. That's what was happening. Bad news was traveling fast. Timothy and the church in Ephesus needed to deal with the issue. And that's the purpose of Paul's writing, at least right now as we read. But as I thought about this and as I examined this and prayed my way through it, even in light of places that we've been as a church for six years and places that I see the church in across America especially, I thought about this. Timothy and the church in Ephesus, they, they didn't need to deal with these issues simply because of the public shame and humiliation. Now, that wasn't the only reason that they needed to deal with this. They needed to deal with these issues for the sake of everybody around them. But for the sake of the purity of the gospel. But for the sake of the glory of God, this needed to be dealt with. And I think it would have been much easier, if you think about this, to just react quickly. Right? When you hear bad news, easy to just react quickly. Trying to displace the publicity of the event. But if, if, if Timothy and, and the Ephesian church did that, they, they would only be responding out of a selfish ambition to just cover things up, smooth things over, put a band-aid over it, and get back to a little more of a comfortable pace of life. Think about this in your own life, and the way that you approach your patterns of sin. The desire to just get back to what's comfortable and get out of what's really uncomfortable. And the ways in which you seek comfort and put band-aids over the things that actually need to be worked on, right? We, we make confessions like, my, my life is just 
out of whack right now. I'm, I'm so tired. My schedule is crazy. I use that illustration because this is my own struggle, right? Now, if you constantly heard me say that for years, you begin to wonder, is Pastor Joe really dealing with the real issues underneath of it? Like, there's a reason that Joe's heart is running on tilt all the time and thinks he's got to be so busy, right? But it'd be really uncomfortable for me if one of you came to me and said, hey, Joe, like, your life's on tilt because you're always running like crazy. You're always worn out. Let's talk about what's really going on inside. No, bro, that's, that's really uncomfortable. It's, it's not a big deal. It was just a bad week last week. See how you just put a Band-Aid on it? I, I find myself tempted towards that. I, I don't know if this is true of you guys. I assume that since we're all human, we struggle with the same things. And that's just one illustration, and it's my own, right? You could, you could apply the same thing to anger, lust, fear, stubbornness, impatience, whatever you want to apply it to. We'd rather deal with the more comfortable areas, kind of pat it down, make it good, be able to walk away, leave a Band-Aid on it. And freak out when everything goes on tilt again later. Like, wow, I thought I had that thing fixed because you only put a Band-Aid on it. You didn't actually fix the root issue, right? Comfort is an issue in the midst of that. The big piece of it is that we don't want to be uncomfortable. So think about your desire for comfort. Desire for comfort can be a destructive device. It causes you to become inwardly focused. Causes you to become self-obsessed. Causes you to become isolated and defensive. And if you think about this, when bad news or when bad days or, or when the storms of life come at you, it makes that pursuit of comfort easier. Right? Usually the cost of comfort for us is uh, the destruction of anyone or anything that stands in our way. Anyone or anything that causes us to be uncomfortable. Now you take that out to its logical um, extent, that means that you and I are in danger of destroying the work of Christ in us and even the presence of Christ in our lives because Jesus will be one of the major barriers to you and I finding comfort. How do I know that? I know that because Jesus is the kind of Savior and King who leaves his place of comfort to come to an uncomfortable place full of sin to save people. That's the Savior and King we claim to follow, which means that if we're going to actually follow him, it means our lives are going to be uncomfortable. The problem is that in at least the Western society, we beg for comfort. We move out of city centers into suburbs where life is rosy and we've got our heaven now and it's quiet and there's no no crime and the person across the street from me isn't playing their music really loud and cussing swearing smoking dope right like we move out of those places because it's not comfortable and then we might do missions trips back into those cities for 15 minutes or so right and then walk away and pat ourselves on the back like i did my missions work for this week (laughs) so Balance there, balance. But we love comfort in America. Not just in America, but in America it looks a certain way as compared to other countries. When we uh, pursue comfort in a sinful way, we begin to think of ourselves only, begin to pray for ourselves only, begin to live for ourselves only. So ask this question of yourself, where, 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 
where have you begun to seek comfort in sinful ways? Maybe it's just quite simply that you have resisted listening to your brothers and sisters in Christ because it's uncomfortable for you and you don't like it. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe it's just that you've checked out behind the TV every night when you get home and don't pay attention to your family because you're tired and you're seeking comfort. It could be a thousand different ways that you have sought comfort in a sinful way. You don't want the discomfort of losing a friend. You haven't confronted their sinful lifestyle yet. Don't want the discomfort of another argument with your kids so you turn a blind eye to their constant screen time. Don't want the discomfort of digging into the desires of your own heart so you <coughs> stiff arm your friends. You don't, you don't want the discomfort of God's word convicting you of your sin so you spend more time on social media or behind the TV. You don't want the discomfort that comes with sharing your faith with an unbelieving friend so you just stay silent. A million different ways that we seek comfort simply. And I say all of this because when we believe the gospel, it's the big idea, I think, in this passage that we're going to look at in more depth here in a moment. When we believe that the gospel is good news for everyone, not just me and not just you, when we move our faith and our trust in the gospel outside of our own little 12-inch bubble that we live in, we believe that the gospel is good news for everyone, what will happen? We will pray and live like it. Plain and simple, we will pray and live like it. So we are called to pray and live for the sake of everyone around us. Why? Because God wants to save everyone. And that'll be fun when we deal with that statement here in a moment. God wants to save everyone through the preaching of the gospel. And the message of the gospel is not preached merely for me. The message of the gospel is preached for everyone who will believe because God reveals himself to everyone through the preaching of the gospel at the right time. This is a summary of what I see in this passage. And then God calls us to be co-laborers with him in the mission of preaching the gospel to everyone. So look at these principles one at a time with me. Try to roll through them quickly. Spent enough time on introduction. Number one, principle number one, God calls us to pray and to live for the sake of everyone. So it can be easy to slip into the comfort of self-focus. Easy to do, especially for us more introverted types. Let me tell you, for an extroverted type like me, it's easy too, especially if you've had a long week. I spent four nights out of the house this last week, four out of the seven, with various different groups of people in our church. I'll tell you that when I walked in this morning, I feel like I don't really want to see another person right now. So even for extroverted types, for all y'all who like to make jokes, there are tough days for extroverts too, just so you know. <laughs> so it can be easy to slip into the comfort of self-focus, especially when you're going through a tough season, like the Ephesian church is going through, <clears throat> sometimes uh, the church has a tendency to turn into an emergency ward. Now, when I say an emergency ward, I don't say that in a good way. I say it in a negative way, like the church is hemorrhaging, and so we're just inwardly focused, right? Got to get ourselves better. That kind of just inward focus. That's one. Or, or another thing that the church has a tendency to do is become a country club, right? Ah, come join our country club. We got cool worship. We got awesome websites, whatever. I don't know. However we, 
you know, pitch that when people come and join the club, have a good time in church. I'm definitely making sarcastic statements because there are ways in which we need to battle against becoming a country club church, right? Or an emergency ward. And what I see in the scriptures, the scriptures teach us that the church is actually meant to be A, a hospital for the sick, and B, a rescue center for the lost, right? But it's not going to be either one of those if it is not a sending agency for rescue workers. Got to be a sending agency for rescue workers, otherwise it will not be a hospital for the sick or a rescue center for the lost. We must send people out into our community. God calls us to pray and to live for the sake of everyone around us. That's why I think Paul says, I urge that supplications, verses 1 through 3, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, because, I put because in there, this is good, <coughs> and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So summary, called to pray and to live for the sake of everyone around us. Why? Because this is good and it pleases God. A good question for Christians to ask, proclaiming Christians, is what I'm thinking right now, what I'm about to do right now, and what I want right now, is it pleasing to God? And simply, if the answer is no, beg Him to save you from those thoughts those actions desire. Problem with that kind of repentance for us, it's not comfortable. We'd rather bury our heads in the sand. See, according to this passage, our lives should be marked by prayerful peacefulness. <coughs> this is similar to what Chris said earlier. A prayerful posture of quietness prayerful posture of godliness and dignity. This is the kind of prayerful, spirit-filled presence that we are called to exhibit as Christians. But here's the sad thing. The sad thing is that Christianity in America especially is far more known for our combativeness. <coughs> our Facebook rants. Our hypocrisy. conflict, our overlooking of the sin within church, our belligerence, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and especially self-control, they seem to be lost in the church in this day. These things seem to be lost in an age of social media rants where we fight for the rights that we are entitled to instead of laying down our rights for the good of others. We have lost sight of the cross. We've turned Jesus into our political hero. This is an abomination to our Savior. We've become so infatuated with getting our senses worked up, with satisfying every want and desire that we have, that we have 
deceptively made good, even though God has called it evil. Prayer become a means to get what we want from a God who is more like a genie in a bottle than the ruling Savior of the world. What, what Paul seeks to do here, I think, I think he's seeking to get the church in Ephesus and her pastor's head, Timothy, up out of the sand so they can once again see it. There, there's an entire world going to hell in a handbasket out there that we once were part of, in some cases are still part of. There's an entire world out there that needs what the church claims to have. And I think on this point, prayer makes all of the difference. Think about the way that we often pray. This was convicting as I studied the commentaries this week. One of the commentators went to great lengths actually visit churches and listen to the kinds of prayers that were offered from the front during worship, from MCs and from preachers. And, and the kinds of prayers that he recorded were so inwardly focused. Oh God, thank you for giving us such a great worship time with you. Never once praying for those outside the walls of that church who needed Jesus too. In some ways, I think we do this well at times. Other times, I don't think we do either. Let that thought examine your prayer life. I think that when the church prays like other people's lives depend on it, then I believe what happens is I believe the gates of hell get shook and entire communities get transformed. You see, churches grow, not die. When people pray for the salvation of lost souls. I remember when we launched our 9.30 prayer time here every Sunday. And I remember the intense, infuriating feeling I felt when I would sit in the room alone with one or two other folks waiting for others from our church family to come and pray for the lost in our community. Every one of you in this church family is an answer to somebody praying. I remember when we were just a church of six people around a park bench. We had and we still have upwards of at least 15 or more churches um, praying on a weekly basis. This is hundreds to thousands of people praying for you. Some of you by name as I pass our membership list along to those churches so they can pray for you by name. That's the faithful commitment of other churches that want to see a mission happen here in Hastings that becomes sustained. Actively praying for God to save people in the city of Hastings and make those folks part of this church. There's, there's so many stories of how God has changed many of your lives and then made you a part of this church family. That's just one of the evidences of the kinds of prayers that I think Paul is talking about in this passage. And for us, again, if you think about it, pacing south of the tracks, 10,000 people. We are one of two English-speaking churches. What would happen? What would happen if we begin the uncomfortable work of praying and living 
for everyone around us in this nearby neighborhood. I think that when we believe that the gospel is good news for everyone and not just me, we'll pray and we'll live like it. Number two, God wants to save everyone. This will be fun. Enjoy this. I think I enjoyed this. God wants to save everyone. Verse four. The interesting thing about the scriptures is you've got to be faithful to what the scriptures actually say. The message of the gospel, right, it's not preached merely for me. It's actually preached for everyone who will believe. This is why Paul reminds Timothy in the Ephesian church that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Simply put, simple interpretation of what Paul says here, God wants to save everyone. Now, for all of you staunch Calvinists in the room, I know you're squirming in your seats, right? You're squirming. You're wondering how I'm going to explain this. For all of you staunch free will believers in the room, you're not necessarily squirming. You're on the edge of your seat. You're like, oh, finally. Wondering how I'm going to get around this passage. You think this passage somehow demolishes the doctrine of election or the doctrine of God's sovereign predetermined choice in salvation. You know I hold to that. So for those of you that know me well enough, there's some on the edge of your seat and there's some of you that are squirming. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do what I do when I prepare sermons and when I study God's word. I want you to slow your roll. I want you to look back at the passage. I want to invite you to look back at the words of the verse. Study it word for word. See that it says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Key word here is the word desires. That word desires has to do with what God wants, not what God determines. Okay? A lot of things that I want that I don't get. God's the same way. You think about how God's heart is grieved when someone is not saved. How is his heart grieved? Well, he wanted that person to be saved, but they're not going to be saved. This passage has to do with what God longs for, not not what He decides. God, God longs for everyone to come to a saving knowledge of the truth, but He hasn't decided that everyone would come to a saving knowledge of the truth. He has actually decided that some would come to a saving knowledge of the truth and that others would not come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Now, I don't care how general you want to keep that, This is just the truth about God's character. And you can take that as far as saying, well, God actually has decided that certain people with certain faces at certain times with certain names at certain ages would come to him and some would not. Or you can actually get very specific with it or you can keep it very general. It's totally up to you. We're just saying the same thing at the end of the day, right? Or the opposite of that, which I think is a very unbiblical thing, 
It's to say that it's all on my decision and your decision, that your decision and my decision actually coerces or changes the decision of God. But God's a God who never changes. So that's hard for me to go there. So another thing is this. God does not, the Bible does not teach universal salvation either. And that's another piece that I think can happen here is that <coughs> if you read this passage and you interpret it wrongly, you apply it wrongly, then you begin to believe uh, that uh, God is going to save everyone. <coughs> and that's not true. The Bible does not teach universal salvation, but here's what it does teach. It does teach universal inclusion. Not everyone will be saved, but everyone has the opportunity to be saved. We could spend a long time here, but, but here's, here's what I want you to catch. When we believe that God wants to save everyone and that he alone knows whom he has decided to save, then that kind of knowledge radically changes our interaction with everyone around us. But we don't hide out from our responsibility and our privilege to evangelize. Um, and we also don't evangelize like it depends completely on our ability to evangelize well. We trust in the sovereign power. We trust in the sovereign choice of our Father to save whom He chooses to save according to His desire that all would be saved. When we believe that the gospel is good news for everyone, we'll pray and we'll live like it. Agreed? Number three, God will reveal himself to everyone. A question that oftentimes comes up, what, what, what happens to people who have never heard? We've spent a long time here, higher volumes and written. The question we wrestled with in our Wednesday night gospel community this last week too. I would just say my simple belief from scripture is that God will reveal himself and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every person who has and is, and will ever live. I'm not there to experience it. I'm not there to see it. And I don't know how he's going to do it. There's an awful lot of things that I don't know how God's going to do. And I just trust by faith that he's going to do it. Because, it. because it's rooted in the word. Right? I don't have to have every I dotted or T crossed to believe something. That's part of belief. It's trusting. Paul says it this way, he says, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men. So there's only one mediator, right? His name is Christ Jesus. He gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So simply put, there's one God, one pathway to heaven, not multiple gods, not multiple pathways. Christ alone has worked the cross on our behalf. It's the only pathway to heaven. And at the appropriate time, that message would be revealed to every person who has ever lived so that they too might have the opportunity to say yes or no to Jesus. Scriptures are clear. Clear that the way that we become God's children is by calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. Romans puts it clear that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is clear that no one comes to the Father except by me. Not me, Jesus. Those same scriptures are very clear that every person is then given that opportunity 
to hear that message of salvation from someone who is then sent to proclaim. Somebody is sent to proclaim that message. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. See, bad news does travel fast, but nothing tastes as sweet, and nothing sounds as good as the good news of the gospel in the midst of hearing the bad news of our sin. We just, ask, just pull back and just ask a few questions. Like, when was the last time you thought about, for longer than 10 seconds, Anybody feel uncomfortable right now? You don't even know what you're supposed to be thinking about, except for the fact that I just counted to 10. I just ask you, though, that felt maybe like a long, grueling 10 seconds. When was the last time you took even just that amount of time in silence and solitude, realized the depth and the horror of your sin against a holy God? Our Father in heaven knows every ounce of your sin in every detail. You can't hide anything from him. And yet, he loves you absolutely completely. You've made yourself out to be his enemy through your sin. Many of us in this room have hated our enemies in a righteous way while loving them completely in a righteous way. You want something that will blow your mind? Don't, don't try to separate God's hatred of you as his enemy from his love for you as his child. We try to do this in many ways, like somehow God, God just hates my sin. But the reality is if you read Romans, you find out that you and I are sin. <laughs> we hate you and loves you completely. Depth of that. Unbelievable. Have you, have, when was the last time you spent 10 seconds just beholding the perfect and horrific sacrifice of Jesus at the cross in your place. Here's the thing. It's been said that if we truly knew the depth of our sinfulness, and if we truly knew the seriousness of the consequences of our sin, if we truly spent time experiencing the vastness of the price that Jesus paid for us, then we would gladly, no, I would say joyfully, because for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Therefore, we would joyfully crawl across hot coals to help save anyone we know from heading down the same path. That would be our posture in the world. Wouldn't be about winning fights. Wouldn't be about your right to own a gun, carry a gun. Wouldn't be about your right to get tattoos or have long hair or wear this kind of clothes or that kind of clothes or the style of worship. I mean, I just go on a tangent and a list of things that we Christians love to argue about in America. Just saying, 
crazy thing is you don't find any of those things in the Bible, but we argue about it. Why? Because you have not experienced yet the depth of the depravity of your sin and the goodness and the holiness of God's love for you. So when we believe that the gospel is good news for everyone, we will pray and live like it. And finally, number four, God calls us to preach the gospel to everyone. I'm sure you felt this all the way through, key word being everyone in this passage, right? Sometimes it's easy for us to get ourselves, kind of put ourselves in God's shoes. We kind of like to pick and choose whom we're going to share the gospel with and whom we're not going to share the gospel with. But God has actually called us as a church to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell, which means that we are called to share the message of the gospel with every person that we come into contact with and especially those whom we would normally shy away from. For Paul, this meant that he was appointed a preacher and an apostle, which he follows up by saying, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth here. Interesting how that little phrase finds its way in there. Like, what he's really saying is, you need to believe what I'm saying, not just about me, but about yourself. I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles, keyword Gentiles in faith and truth. The Gentiles were often regarded as outsiders to the Jewish faith. In fact, to walk through a Gentile nation as a Jewish person would be to take off your flip-flops and shake the dust off, right? Get statement. Dust off your feet. But God had made it clear throughout the entirety of the Bible that he actually loves the outsider just as much as the insider. He loves the up and outs just as much as he loves the down and outs. He desires that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be part of his family. Now, the church is not meant to be an elitist club of social or religious insiders. The church is meant to be a family that is saved by the gospel, changed by the gospel, and sent on mission with the message of the gospel to the furthest corners of the earth. God calls us to preach the gospel to everyone. And when we believe that, when we believe that the gospel is good news for everyone, we'll pray and we'll live like it. So, if you find yourself not praying and not living in ways that are good and pleasing to God, part of that could be you just simply do not believe that the gospel is for everyone. You believe the gospel is just meant for you. Well, the hope is that that kind of conviction would sink in and you would repent from that. See that you are one among many. And that there are still many others who need to hear. Bad news travels fast, but nothing tastes as sweet. Sounds as good. Good news of the gospel in the midst of hearing the bad news of our sin. In conclusion, I'm going to leave you with this. The reality for every one of us hearing this message is that every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us can take the implications of this text, the four points of this text, as I've just done, and use them as an evaluation tool, an assessment tool of our hearts and our souls and our lives, and be found wanting, every one of us. Because every one of us falls short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. 
Every one of us has rebelled and turned our back on our Father in heaven. Every one of us has lived for the sake of our own foolish and sinful desire. Every one of us has given in to the temptation for comfort at the expense of someone else. And every one of us has had the death penalty of eternal separation from God hanging over our heads. We've all experienced that kind of weight of bad news, right? That's the bad news of the gospel. But God, in all of His goodness, all of His faithfulness, sent His one and His only Son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sin. See, Jesus didn't cling to comfort. He left comfort behind to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell on a cross with your picture in His pocket. Listen, death could not beat Him and hell could not hold Him and Satan was no match for Him. He beat Satan's sin and the grave and the tomb is empty and the price for your sin, past, present, and future has been paid in full. Do you believe this message? Because that message, that takes all of that weight of condemnation and it releases it and it removes it and it replaces it with joy-filled desire. When you believe that the gospel is good news for everyone and not just for you, which by the way, is a prostituted message of the gospel. I think it's just for you. You believe that it's for everyone. It will radically transform the way that you pray and the way that you live. Pray. Father, we do come before you now as we close our time in your word. We do ask, Father, that you would draw the attention of our hearts to you, to the work of your son Jesus at the cross, and to the power of the empty tomb. And as we engage in just a closing song of worship, and as we pray for one another, and as we engage and participate in in, in this meal around the table, so to speak, Father, help us to be acutely aware of that, that sacrificing sanctifying work that you did at the cross and are doing in us. Not just in us, but Father, do that work through us. Father, we beg you to save people in our community. Father, I know that there are people in this room, even now, that believe that they're Christian because they grew up in a church. They believe they're Christian because they have a Bible sitting at home because they showed up on Sunday. Father, I pray that you would convict hearts that aren't alive, that you would save them and transform them and give them a brand new heart with brand new affections that would desire you above all things. I pray, Father, that you would not only do that in just this group of people here, but that you would begin to do that work through us as a church family in our community. We would see hundreds, if not thousands of people come to follow you because of your work through us. Work and we trust you. Help us to believe that the gospel is good news for everyone. 
help us to pray and live like we actually believe that. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.